Okay, we are starting in, in Ephesians, uh, I'm sorry, Acts chapter 19, verse 21. So that's, that's where we had left off last time, Acts 19, verse 21. And Paul had ministered in Ephesus, and remember the, the, the amount of time that he ended up spending in, in Ephesus in total was probably more time than he spent in any other, other one location. Uh, maybe maybe uh, uh, the next one being Corinth, if you look look the total time that he had spent in Ephesus. So it was, it was quite a, a fruitful place for him. Okay, let's look at Acts 19, verse 21. Now, after these things were finished, Paul purposed in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem after he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Aratus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. Okay, so in verse 21 it says that, that, that uh, uh, Paul purposed in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. And, and this Spirit, this word Spirit, can mean his human spirit or it can mean the Holy Spirit. And it's not known. But if we say that Paul's human spirit was subjected to the Holy Spirit, then, then it, it was something that, that he was purposing to do for the work of the Lord. He wanted to go to Jerusalem. And in fact, earlier it says that he had tried to get to Jerusalem for the Passover, but he never made it. And so later we're going to see that he, he, he settles on trying to get to Jerusalem for, for Pentecost, for the Feast of Pentecost. And the Feast of Pentecost is 50 days after the Passover. That's what Pentecost means. Uh, so he, he had purposed to get to Jerusalem. But he said before he was going to go to Jerusalem, he decided to go through Macedonia and Achaia. So he's here, in, he, he, he's, he's uh, on the coast in, in Ephesus, and he, he's going to go around to Macedonia and then Achaia, and then travel on back. So he, he makes this plan to do this. And, uh, and uh, then after this, he said, I must also see Rome. Now, to this point, Paul had not been to Rome. Yet Paul, by this point, had probably already lit, written the letter to the Romans. But he probably got his insight for that from uh, uh, Priscilla and Aquila. Because they had been ministering in Rome for quite some time. And then they had met Paul. Uh, and, and uh, uh, probably gave him the rundown on what the church was like there, and on that basis he had written the letter. But he had not yet been there physically, at least not since, since he had been on missionary journeys. But what you see here is he's, he made a plan to do something. It wasn't like he would just wake up in the morning and say, hmm, what should I do today for the Lord? Wonder what I'm going to do today. No, he made a specific plan. He said that, that uh, uh, I want to eventually end up back in Jerusalem, but then after I go to Jerusalem, I, I, I'm going to see Rome. But before I go to Jerusalem, I want to go through Macedonia and Achaia, these two other regions, and several cities that he would visit in that time. Now, it's interesting that, that, that most believers, most Christians, aim at nothing and they hit it every time. And, and so, it is good to have purpose in life. It is good to have certain aims. 
places that we're going to go, things that we're going to do in service to the Lord, it is good to have that. Because very often we could think that, you know, being a Christian is, is, is just spending this time with the Lord in the mornings and then, you know, seeing what, whatever comes. But no, Paul had a purpose. He had a ministry there. And there was something that called, no, I have to go here, I have to go here, 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 and serve the Lord. And then I'm going to go back here for the day of Pentecost, and then I, I plan on going to Rome after that. He had a purpose, he had a mission. So we, we were in Israel for the last five Sundays. So we were let away for, for a little over four weeks. And generally what happens is, I'll work all week preparing for this Sunday school class. And it is good for me to do that. It helps me personally. Because it causes me to read the scriptures and to cry out to the Lord and say, Lord, what, what should I be doing? Lord, what, what should I be speaking about? And I'm crying out, Lord, speak to me through the scriptures. Lord, teach me what I ought to be doing. And I'm crying out all the more, Lord, here's the passage that I have to go through this coming week. What do you want me to bring out? And I'm crying out to the Lord. And what happens when I'm away for five weeks, I don't have to do that. Now, I was still waking up every morning and having my time with the Lord and the Scriptures, and I was enjoying that. But I could see that I was losing an edge in crying out all the time. Because it is good to have something that stretches us spiritually, that causes us to cry out to Him. And without that, we become lethargic in our faith. You say, well, that doesn't happen to me. Not true. It happens to everyone. It is good to have an area that say, hey, this is the ministry that God has called me to. Whether it's, it's knowing that my task is to be at such and such a place and set up for this thing. Or my task is to go and work in a soup kitchen somewhere and reflect the love of Christ in that each of us is to have some ministry, whether it be on campus, whether it be at home. And you can see that very often with college-age people, that they may be very active spiritually on campus. But then the summertime comes, and for three months they're at home, and they don't have to you know, get ready for the campus crusade meeting to stand up there and speak. And after three months, they become really weakened in their state, because it's like three months of not exercising. You know, and so, you know, if you exercise regularly and then you give it up for three months, you feel like, you feel really weak and, and, and you feel like, you know, you're getting, getting, gaining too much weight and things are happening. Same thing happens spiritually. We must have a purpose, a plan. So, you know, even as I do this little class, I pray, Lord, you know, what's the next thing that I should be sharing about? And here as we're going through the book of Acts, I know that, you know, before too long we'll be done with the book of Acts. Lord, where should I go next? And then when I'm in that book, what should I be teaching? What should I be bringing out? He had a purpose. He had a plan. Now, we make plans, but they're subject to change. We're going to see that all of a sudden something is going to happen in this chapter that Paul didn't plan on. And that is still good. It is good to have a plan. And then there are things that come at us that we don't plan on. But still, we're to have a plan. But it can't be written in stone because things come at us. You know, we get in a car accident. You know, and, and uh, or we, we, you know, we uh, um, 
You know, something happens that, that, that causes us to get pulled away for a few weeks. Something happens. But still, there has to be a plan. We need to be involved in a ministry that causes us to stretch beyond ourselves. And without that, without that, without that constant that, hey, I have to be ready for this. There's something where other people are depending on me. You know, we used to have a, a college group. When, when, we were, when Shira and I were in school, we used to invite students into our home for a weekly Christian meeting. And what I would do is to say we would have a meal together. And although it was no problem for us to pay for every aspect of that meal together, is that I used to say the week before, I would say, okay, next week we're going to have this meal. Who can bring the bread? Who can bring a salad? Who can bring desserts? Who can bring... And I wanted everybody to have a task that they had to bring something. And it wasn't because it was an issue of money. It was because I knew that if they were told that, hey, okay, we're depending on you for the bread, that it's going to cause them to more likely be there the next week. Because, you know, what is it if we're serving sandwiches and then the person who's bringing the bread doesn't come? And then it doesn't look very good. And so... I would say we are depending on you for each one of these things. And if you're not going to make it, it's your responsibility to call Shireen and tell her that you're not going to make it and drop the bread off. I wanted everybody to have a task and a responsibility. You see what I mean? Do you see the good in that? That it causes us to, to say, hey, this is my part, this is my role. And so even if you don't feel like you're, you, you know, you're, you're, you're ready to be teaching the Scriptures publicly... Are we ready to, to stand up and publicly do, do evangelism? You can bring a loaf of bread. You know, that anybody can do. A four-year-old can do that. So this is the type of thing that, that, that we're to have an expectation of, Lord, show me what I'm to be doing. And it is up to you. And this is what I tell, tell my own kids as they're growing up. And I say, you know, the older you get, the more you will see that you're responsible for your actions and your actions will affect your life. So the decisions you make as a five-year-old affect your life a little bit. The decisions you make at a 20-year-old affect your life a whole lot more. And they can set in motion a course for your life. Who is your spouse going to be? Who are the people you're going to hang out with because that's going to affect who your spouse is going to be. And who your spouse is affects what it's going to be like for the rest of your life. Decisions affect your life. And as you make decisions to serve the Lord, it affects your life for good. It is a good thing. And you become more participating in the body of Christ. And what happens, the result of that is, you meet people that are like-minded that also participate in the life of the body of Christ. And you end up marrying a person that participates in the life of the body of Christ, and they end up being less selfish. And it's good to be married to a person who is less selfish. It's difficult to be married to a selfish person. So you see, the decisions that you make to serve the Lord affect your life. It is good to have a plan. You say, I have no direction, I have no plan. You come and see me, and we'll start to say, okay, where are your gifts? And let's start getting you involved in youth ministry, in some ministry in the body of Christ, or some ministry on campus, somewhere that you can be serving that causes you to have to step out beyond yourself. 
You can, you can be serving in that way. This is something that you can do. Okay, so let, let's move on. So he, he sent with him Timothy and Erastus. He sent them before him in, in, while he stayed in Asia for a while. Now in verse 23. And at that time there occurred no small disturbance concerning the way. Okay, so something happened. So literally the words are no small disturbance. That means a very big disturbance occurred. This is not something that Paul planned on. Paul didn't plan on this disturbance occurring. This is what Christian life is. Lots of things come at us that we didn't plan on. And if we're so tender that we're like, Lord, I didn't plan on this. Well, grow up. This is life. You know, my, my daughter went away on her honeymoon. She just got married, went away on her honeymoon for five days, came back. The day they came back, their, their, their drain clogged and the, 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 the one toilet in their small apartment, in their small bathroom, started backing up. And so here she and her new husband come back to this overflowing toilet that takes half a day to clean up and deal with these things. And Shireen says to them, welcome to life. And it's interesting that the other, that my, my son-in-law's mother said to them the same words, welcome to life. This is exactly what life is. Toilets overflow, we didn't plan on it. Yes, you were just on your honeymoon, but you come back to an overflowing toilet. This is what life is all about. Things come at us that we don't plan on. And if you're so tender in heart that you can't deal with these disturbances that come that you didn't plan on, I don't know how you can survive as a human being. Lots of things happen to us that we never planned on. Paul didn't plan on this. We don't plan on many things, but they happen. Things happen to us. You know, one day, it was New Year's Eve, and, and Shereen and I were staying at her brother's home, and, and uh, uh, he went out to some, some gathering on New Year's Eve with his wife, and we were staying at home. I think we may have been babysitting his kids and, and everything, and, and what happened that evening is the toilet got clogged, and it was overflowing. Well, it was the upstairs toilet. And Shireen comes to me after about five minutes and she wakes me up. She says, the toilet's overflowing. I said, oh, why, why didn't you get me earlier? So I ran and I shut the water. But by that time, it had overflowed a lot. And so we're mopping it all up. And I thought, this is an upstairs bathroom. I wonder what's below it. And I went downstairs to the kitchen and there's a stream of water coming through the ceiling, through the cabinets where the dishes are, and hitting the kitchen counter. So we start cleaning up the kitchen counter and the stuff in the cabinets, and I'm thinking, this is the kitchen. I'm wonder, I wonder what's below it. Now, this was in New York, so there were basements, but he had just finished his basement. That means had it remodeled and everything, so it didn't look like a basement anymore. And so I went down to the basement, and I see a stream of water coming down into the basement. And this is New Year's Eve, and... And, and things we didn't plan on. And, and actually, the, it had a blown ceiling, and it had opened up, slid across, and was hanging down. The water had opened it up, and I thought, oh, my goodness. And so, anyway, we cleaned that up, and I took the ceiling, and I just pushed it up, and it stayed. And I thought, I sure hope this stays for at least another day. <laughs> and anyway, so 
for years, I would go back to their house, and, and when they came back, I told them, you know, the, the toilet overflowed, and, you know, some dripped down in the kitchen. I didn't go into all the gory details, and, you know, his wife said, oh, we've had that happen before. I'm thinking, okay, well. So, every year we'd go back, and the ceiling was still stuck there, and I could see a little crack, a little seam, but it never opened back up. But things you don't plan on happen. This is what life is about. It happens in a Christian sense, too. You plan on something and you think, God, where are you? I didn't plan on this happening. Well, you know, this is part of life. Paul didn't plan on this no small disturbance happening. So what was this disturbance? In verse 24, For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who had made silver shrines for Artemis, was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen of a similar trade and said, Men, you know that our prosperity depends upon this business. You see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people, saying that the gods made with hands are no gods at all. Not only is there danger that this trade of ours fall into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis be regarded as worthless, and that she whom all of Asia and the world worship will even be dethroned from her magnificence. When they heard this, they were filled with rage. They began crying out, saying, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The city was filled with confusion, and they rushed with one accord into the theater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. And when Paul wanted to go out into the assembly, the disciples would not let him. Also, some of the the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and repeatedly urged him not to venture into the theater. Okay, so, what's happening is that there's a man named Demetrius, he's a silversmith, and he's getting concerned because there were so many converts in Ephesus that a lot fewer people were buying the silver shrines, the little silver idols. Uh, uh, to Artemis. And so he's becoming really concerned and he gets all the other craftsmen. But you see that the heart of this is in verse 25. Men, you know that our prosperity depends upon this business. This is the heart of the issue for Demetrius, is it's business. And I understand that. You know, I'm not like, well, how could he be this way? I understand that. I mean, a man's business is very important to him. And you go and you start having people disrupting your business, whatever that may be. Becomes, you, you know, you really start taking it hard. And people can come up and say, well, you know, you really shouldn't be discouraged that, you know, this employee is this way or that way. And the guy who runs the business, no, I'm very, you, you know, it concerns me a lot because I'm paying him and he's doing this and he's doing that. I mean, for you, it doesn't mean anything. For me, it means a lot. This is my business. But the heart of the issue is business. But then he turns it around so that he says, well, it's really for Artemis and for for the, the, the God's good. But really the heart of the issue was his business. And so he, he, he stirs up the, the, the rest of, of the, the, uh, the silversmiths and he gets them start to cry out in verse 28, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And the city is filled now with confusion. This is a big problem. Remember, no small disturbance, which means a huge disturbance occurred. 
And they couldn't find Paul. They happened not to find Paul, but they found two guys who had traveled with Paul. That was good enough. And they dragged them into the theater. Now, they have unearthed this theater. This theater was huge. It could hold 25,000 people. And so remember we said that, that the Ephesus had a very large population. It was between 250,000 and 500,000 people, which, you know, you have a city of 500,000 people today. That's a reasonable-sized city. Back then, this was a huge city. The theater set 25,000. So, so I don't know how much the Toyota Center holds, but something like 20,000 seats. So this was a huge theater. And so they, they, grab it, they, they grab these two traveling companions with Paul. And then Paul wants to go out into this crowd and say, hey, you know, leave them alone. I'm Paul. But the, even the Asiarchs, the disciples, don't want Paul to go into this violent crowd. And the Asiarchs, the Asiarchs were, were a group of, of rich men. Over every province within Asia, there were Asiarchs. There were ten Asiarchs assigned. And it, it, it was generally very wealthy men because it was an unpaid position. And they had oversight over what happened with the money that was given for the worship of the emperor. And also they, they, they were the officiators at, at uh, all the games. And so it, it was, uh, uh, with this came a great honor. So even though they weren't paid, you know, it, it was a volunteer position that came with great honor. So these were influential, powerful people. Some of them were friends of Paul's. doesn't say that they were believers, but they were friends of Paul. And they warned Paul, don't go into that crowd. Don't go there. They liked Paul. Paul had friends in high places that weren't necessarily believers. Interestingly, when we were just in Israel, I have friends that are very influential people in Israel that are Jews, that are not Christians, that don't agree with me on, 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 on faith, but they're my friends. And they care about me. And in fact, they've warned me, you know, be careful about in this situation saying certain things and things like that, because they care about me. They cared about Paul. They said, don't go into there. Verse 32. So then some were shouting one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion and the majority did not know for what reason they had come together. Some of the crowd concluded it was, crowd concluded it was Alexander since the Jews had put him forward and having motioning with his hand, Alexander was intending to make a defense to the assembly. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, a single outcry arose from them as all, as all, arose from them all as they shouted for about two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. After quieting the crowd, the town clerk said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there, after all, who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of the image which fell down from heaven? So since these are undeniable facts, you ought to keep calm and do nothing rash, for you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of our goddess. So then, if Demetrius and the craftsmen who are with him have a complaint against any man, the courts are in session and the proconsuls are available. Let them bring charges against one another. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you want anything beyond this, it shall be settled in the lawful assembly. For indeed, we are in danger of being accused of a riot in connection with today's events, since there is no real cause for it. And in this connection, we will be unable to give account for the disorderly gathering. And saying this, he dismissed the assembly. Okay, so this man Alexander, who is probably Alexander the coppersmith, who Paul talks about later in one of his epistles, Alexander did me great harm. Alexander was put forth by the Jews because generally 
Gentiles could not distinguish between mainline Judaism and Jews who believed that Jesus was the Messiah. To them, it was all Jewish. And so, the Jews were putting forth Alexander to say, hey, explain to them that this is not the Jews in general. Remember, the Jews had a huge community in Ephesus because there was freedom of faith there. And so, so uh, 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 they put forth Alexander probably to say, hey, look, you know, these men are Jewish, but not like we're Jewish. They believe in this other Messiah. We don't. But as soon as they saw that Alexander was a Jew, it made them the whole crowd even more violent. And they started screaming. It says, for two hours, for two hours they started screaming, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So you see how chaotic this is? I don't know if you've ever been in a mob that's become violent, where a lot of them don't even know why they're there, but they're shouting. It says they shouted for two hours. This was a pretty unruly mob, and nobody could get hold of them. And finally, someone com- comes in that, that uh, after quieting the crowd, the town clerk said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there? And he goes on. So the town clerk was a man of authority. He could calm them. I saw the same sort of thing. I was in an airport when we were overseas. And, you know, you know there's, there's people coming in... Uh, um, coming from where, where the immigration is, and they come out, and there are these, these barriers and these lines, and they say, you can't pass this line. Let the people come out, and when they come across the line, you can hug them and greet them and everything. Well, the crowd started moving over the line, and little by little, they were moving further and further over the line. And there, was, there were a couple of guys there who were supposed to be orderlies that were saying, please get back, please get back. And I saw the people in the crowd like, and we're just screaming. And, you know, kids were running up and greeting their parents, so much so that the crowd had gone way beyond the line. I'm thinking, this is really chaotic. I can't even see my party that's supposed to come off and meet us anymore because there's so many crowds around. And then finally, one guy comes who just has this air of authority. He comes walking, he says, get back, get back, you, right. And he would target people, look them right in the face and say, you, get behind that line. It, you know, when someone targets me in a crowd, you, you know, oh, okay. You see what I mean? He had this air of authority, and within, within I don't know, five minutes, the whole crowd was pushed back behind the line, and they weren't going to pass that line again because they didn't want this guy to target them. He didn't pull out a gun and start shooting them or anything, but just a different sort of authority. You will see this in action. Sometimes you'll see a crowd of people, and nobody can get control of them, and one guy will walk up and say, Enough! You see it with children. Sometimes there'll be one woman that just can just, boom. You know, Miss Barbara, the one in charge of our, our children's ministry here, she can walk into a room and kids are screaming and yelling. And in one second, you know, she just calls out, young man! You know, and it targets one young man and that's it. And the whole crowd, get, the whole crowd of kids gets silent. One man can come in and can make this difference. There are people that have this ability to quiet crowds. This town clerk did. And he said, look, we are in big trouble here because one of the things that the Romans hated were riots. And this crowd looked like a riot. And he said, we're going to be in big trouble. There's no accounting for this. you got a problem with these guys. You bring it before the proconsuls and the court. You don't deal with it in this manner. Can you imagine an unruly crowd in the city? One man, a town clerk, has such authority. You will see this sort of thing. Maybe God has granted you this type of authority to come in and take complete control of an entire crowd. 
I've seen people like this in other situations. I've seen debates between Christians and, and Muslims. I'm not sure that that's the best thing to ever have, but there was a debate on campus between Christians and Muslims. And for the first half, there was a, a, a Christian guy who was supposed to oversee the crowd, and he had tremendous control. He said, if there's one wrong word shouted out, I'm going to have the campus police remove you. I mean, the crowd was dead silent the whole time during the debate for the first half. The second half, they had another guy come in from the Muslim side who was the overseer. And the crowd got crazy. And this guy was trying to control him, but he just couldn't. Just couldn't. Two different men, two different abilities in this. This town clerk had the ability to quiet that crowd. He did. And then he dispersed the crowd. He said, you bring it to the courts. Now look in verse 20. I'm sorry, chapter 20, verse 1. After the uproar had ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and when he had exhorted them and taken his leave of them, he left for Macedonia. So, after this huge uproar in the city, Paul calls together the disciples, and he says, it's all right. It's okay. Yeah, there was this mass confusion, but it's okay. He he says, he, he called them together, and he exhorted them. He's exhorting them, saying, don't give up. Yeah, there was this crowd, but don't give up. This is what a good pastor does. There's great confusion, and lots of people are hurt and discouraged. I saw it after 9-11. After 9-11, Christians were just, you know, in a daze. What's going on? What's happening? And pastors would stand up in the church and say, it's going to be all right. Jesus is still on the throne. He's okay. This is what the fathers of families should be able to do. When their families are nervous and in an uproar, the father is supposed to be saying, cool it. It's okay. This is what pastors do. Paul doesn't run and say, oh, it's so terrible here. Let's get out of here. No, he calls his disciples together. He says, it's okay. It's all right. Yeah, there was this confusion. There was this uproar. It looked like we were going to be torn to shreds. But the Lord protected us. It's okay. Don't lose heart. Continue on. It is good to be able to do this. To be able to come in and encourage a crowd. Because what will happen is when something goes wrong, you'll have a bunch of naysayers to come around and say, yes, we can't take that land. Yes, let's return to Egypt. You will definitely have that. In every crowd, there's, there, there's a couple of guys who will sit there and say, let's return to Egypt. It's too hard out here. Too hot, there's not enough water. And besides, this boss, you know, if he had had control, this wouldn't have happened. And they'll start to get a little following around them. And you have to be able to walk in and say, enough, it's going to be all right, you're wrong. We're not returning to Egypt. Or whatever the case may be. I see this in my business. Something goes wrong. And, 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 and there's a bunch of people looking around like, oh, you know, everything's terrible. No, you come in, everything's fine. We're going to be all right. Get moving. Then people feel better. Do you know what I mean? Have you ever seen such a thing? Has nobody ever seen this? Are you that young that you've never seen this sort of thing happen? That a person can come in and totally change the atmosphere with one word. Just stand up and say, enough. We are fine. It's going to be all right. I do this in secular settings all the time. You know, a great man dies. And everyone under them is like, huh. Life is over. No, it's not over. We're going to be fine. We're going to excel. We're going to succeed. Oh, okay. And the crowd begins to follow. This is what happens. This is what Paul did. He's reassuring them, we're going to be all right. It's good to have people like Paul around that can take a crowd and reassure them. 
And if you're one of these, these, these rebellious people, like in Korah's rebellion, and say how miserable life is, and always walking around and seeing the negative, then change your attitude, because that stinks. Because in Korah's rebellion against Moses, the, the ground opened and swallowed him up. With all the other people with him. So if you like to be a naysayer, you better change your attitude. And look at the positive that Jesus is still on the throne. That even if the pastor dies, Jesus is still on the throne. The church is going to be alright. It didn't start with him. It's not going to end with him. And things are going to be okay. And so Paul deals with this issue. And then, and then it, it, it says in verse 2 of, of chapter 20, And when they had gone through some of those districts and given them much exhortation, he came to Greece. And there he spent three months, and when a plot was formed against him by the Jews, and he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. And he was accompanied by Sopater of Berea, the son of Pyrrhus, and Aristarchus and Secundus of the, of the Thessalonians, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and Tychius, and Trophimus of Asia. So look at two of the people in that list, Gaius and Aristarchus. Look back in, in chapter 19, verse 29. Gaius and Aristarchus. Two people who had been dragged up by that mob that were about to be shredded because of you know, something that, that, that they were against Paul for are here traveling with him again. Don't you find that interesting that they didn't desert Paul? Oh, Paul, you, you, you almost got me killed here. This being Christian is kind of dangerous. I'm getting out of here. No. No, they, they stood with Paul. They were with him still. They were right there with Paul. They were fine with him. It was fine with them and Paul. So what, what happened is they didn't leave him. You know what happens to Christians when they start, you, you know, things start rolling? Other Christians just pull back from them. We'll have nothing to do with that guy. If God was really with him, this wouldn't have happened to him. This is the other thing. No, if God, if you're really serving the Lord, problems arise. If you're really serving the Lord, people contest with you. If you're not serving the Lord, you get no contest. That's the rule. And some believers see, see uh, 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 people contesting with a believer and they want to pull back from that. Oh, wow. You know, if God was really with him, there wouldn't be anybody you know, complaining and contesting. No, that's not true. They're still traveling with him. They didn't desert him. This happens with Christian parents. You know, their, their kids go off on a mission trip and the Christian parents are just, you know, you know trembling. Oh, what's going to happen? And as soon as they hear one little problem in that country that may be on the other side of the country, oh, get home, get home. It's dangerous over there. This is silliness. Stay there, stay there. Now's the time you need to be there. Christian parents always want to protect their kids. And remember what it says. If you love your children more than me, you're not worthy of me, Jesus said. If you love son or daughter more than me, you're not worthy of me, Jesus said. You're here. My whole family goes to Israel. People say, you know, is it safe over there? I don't know if it's safe over there. It's not safe over here in Houston. My, one of my daughters and one of my sons stays back. Because they're, gonna, they're only going to come just for the wedding. Well, one of the sons over here is staying back, and he's doing the most innocuous thing you can do. He's being a counselor in the church youth group. And the first day, a kid drops a bowling ball on his toe, and it breaks in three places. So we're in Israel doing just fine, and I get these calls, how my son's got a broken toe. 
it's kind of a big deal because he's a kicker being recruited for colleges and his kicking foot breaks his big toe. He would have been better off being in Israel. It was safer. You see what I mean? You can't run from danger. You just can't run. And Christian parents want to protect their... You know, is it safe over there? I don't know if it's safe, but is that where the Lord wants him? Was it safe for Aristarchus and Gaius? Was it safe for them? Well, apparently, you you know, just a week ago, it wasn't safe at all, but still they didn't give up. And as soon as missionaries end up in a country where problems start arising, people are like, well, I told them not to go there. Yeah, because you love, you, you, you don't love Jesus enough. That's why you told them not to go there. Because you love them more than you love Christ. That's why you told them not to go there. I mean, things arise. Things happen. You can't just say, I'm going to run from danger. Because a lot of things happen here in Houston on the highways. What, are you going to run from that too? Maybe you shouldn't drive your car because a lot of people die on the highways here. What are you going to do? Just sit in your home and, you know, inhale radon all day? What are you going to do? How are you going to run from danger? This is what it is. And you don't run from believers just because people start contesting with their faith. And just because troubles start arising in a local church, you don't just say, well, I'm leaving and going to another church where things are calmer. Well, things will happen in that church too if you wait there long enough. Every church goes through problems. You don't just run from things. And this is what we see. It is a beautiful pattern of what Christian life really is. You make plans. And then things arise that you didn't plan on. You exercise leadership. You exercise uh, 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 comfort. And a word of grace and encouragement when everybody else is, is downcast. And as believers, we should be having the best word. That when everybody's going around and, 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 and wondering what's happening on days like 9-11, you just say, it's going to be alright. We're going to be okay as a nation. We're going to be okay as believers. It's going to be okay. And you give them that one little word and it just changes their attitude. And then to be able to say, hey, I'm not devo- de- uh, uh, leaving my friends just because they go through trouble. This is Christian life. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this word, the word of God, which teaches us what it means to be believers, what it means to walk with you. Father, I pray for these young people that you give them hearts where they would stand fast. They would make plans that would cause them to be stretched as believers to do well so that they wouldn't become lethargic in their faith or lazy in their faith. And Father, I pray that you would so work in their lives that when the problems of life arise, they wouldn't get so flustered and begin to give up. But they would move on. And Father, that you would give them those words of encouragement, those words of authority to speak a word, to turn a crowd, to turn the atmosphere of an entire group, and to not be one of those naysayers. And Father, I pray that you'd give them encouragement and light to walk with you, even as problems arise, to walk with you. And Father, I commit them to you and ask your blessing to be upon them, that this word of God would be impressed upon their hearts. And I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.